Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. Barring some kind of extraordinarily dramatic upset, it is right now highly probable that Hillary Clinton will be the Democratic nominee for president in 2016. She hasn't sealed a deal yet, but that's very, very likely. Again, barring some kind of upset. When slash if she receives a nomination, some commentators will almost certainly go on about how she is the first woman to ever be nominated for president. Look for that after the Democratic convention. Some talking head on some news show will almost certainly say that. First ever woman to be nominated for president. And when that talking head says that, they will be wrong. Hillary Clinton is not going to be the first woman nominated as a presidential candidate. She will be the first woman nominated by a major party, but women have been running for president for years. And the first woman to run for president predates Clinton by well over a century. In 1872, Virginia Woodhull became the first woman to run for the president of the United States. Her campaign was something that was a curiosity at the time, and she was considered a fiery radical, advocating women's rights and free love. Woodhull got her professional start in a totally normal and non-weird way for the 1800s. Uh, she and her sister, Tennessee Woodhull, they worked as traveling clairvoyants and fortune tellers in rural Ohio. Uh, she and her sister, they gallivanted around Ohio, they told people's fortunes, they allegedly communicated with spirits, they suckered people out of their money by pretending to talk to ghosts, and that was just something you did in the 1800s. Spiritualism, it was huge. And it wasn't just rubes and gullible people who were into the craze. This is something that prominent, respectable, educated people also got into. Most notably, Arthur Conan Doyle, the guy who created Sherlock Holmes. He was way into spiritualism. And so was the railroad tycoon Cornelius Vanderbilt. Victoria and her sister Tennessee, they eventually came to the attention of Cornelius Vanderbilt. And in 1868, the Woodhull sisters, they moved to New York City and started working for Vanderbilt as his medical clairvoyance. Victoria, in particular, worked as a magnetic healer for the railroad tycoon. Vanderbilt... He was apparently something of a paranoid, and he got squeamish around and was distrustful of traditional medical doctors. So instead of medical doctors and, you know, science, he preferred to have his health issues seen to by young women who could supposedly communicate with necromantic spirits. When you are rich, you can afford to be eccentric. And this connection with Vanderbilt and his social world and money and, and all those things they allowed Victoria and her sister entree into the world of New York finance and into the New York Stock Exchange. And they became the first ever female stock traders. The sources differ on this, but they also engaged in what maybe, possibly, kind of today would be considered insider trading. Um, because Victoria and Tennessee were privy to inside info about the state of Vanderbilt's company, and I do mean insider info, in that Tennessee apparently carried on an affair with the tycoon. In 1869, they were able to make about $700,000 after a major gold panic. Um, I wanted to find out how much that would be in today's money, by the way, so I ran that through a few different inflation calculators to see what the buying power of $700,000 in 1869 would be today. 
Most of the sites that I found only calculated inflation going back to 1913. The U.S. Department of Labor's calculator estimated that in 1913, $700,000 would be worth well over $16 million today, and it would be even more in 1869. The exact numbers aren't important. What's important here is that Woodhull and her sister got hugely rich on the stock market. So she's in New York. She's working for Vanderbilt as a magnetic healer. She's well known as a stock trader. And because she was so successful and high profile, Woodhull became the first woman to address a congressional committee, and she advocated woman suffrage. She said that because women were taxed, and as a Wall Street trader, she was probably well aware of how much she was being taxed, they should also have the right to vote, which is, you know, a fairly American sentiment, what with the whole taxation without representation thing that sort of played a part in the Revolutionary War. And Victoria and Tennessee, they also started up a newspaper in New York which advocated for radical, weird ideas, like the acceptability of short skirts and vegetarianism. And this newspaper that they ran, uh, it also, notably, published the first English translation of the Communist Manifesto, which I have to concede that is still fairly radical, even by today's standards. So, Victoria Woodhull, she's very successful, has a lot of money. She's appeared before Congress. She has a newspaper. What do you do if you've talked to ghosts, made friends with the Gilded Age tycoons, if you have gobs and gobs of stock market money, if you have your own newspaper, if you've appeared before Congress? What do you do after that? Well, you run for president, of course. In the 1872 presidential election, Woodhull mobilized other advocates for women's suffrage to form the Equal Rights Party, which was never all that large. Uh, they nominated her for president and also nominated Frederick Douglass to fill out the ticket as vice president. Not that Douglass had anything to do with that, mind you. They nominated him in absentia, and Douglass, rather than trying to become Woodhull's vice president, he was out actively campaigning for Ulysses S. Grant during that election. Woodhull traveled around the country and campaigned, obviously for equal rights, as well as the curbing of monopolies and for, now this is really weird, an eight-hour workday. What a firebrand. But Woodhull's big issue, and the thing that she is remembered for over and above everything else, was free love. And no, this is not the kind of anything-goes-naked-hippie-free love that you might have experienced that one time when you were at Burning Man and you ate a bunch of exciting mushrooms and then danced all night to house music with a pair of Icelandic raver chicks before stumbling back to their yurt where you, the two of them, and their friend Hans all did various anatomical things with each other. No, not that kind of free love. No, when Woodhull was talking about and advocating for free love, she was talking about the ability of people, particularly women, to have relationships with other people whom they actually liked. She believed that love and marriage were not necessarily intertwined at all. She thought that love and marriage were basically separate, and that was radical in the 1870s. That also put her at odds with that really awful love and marriage song. You know that one, the song that played during the credits of Married with Children? I hate that song. Woodhull would have also hated it. And she had good reason to draw a distinction between love relationships and marriage. Uh, her first husband was an abusive alcoholic who was substantially older than her. And when Woodhull divorced this man, who treated her and her children very badly, she did not think that her divorce compromised her morality in any way. For a modern person, this is totally reasonable. 
And this is a line of thinking that we've pretty well internalized. But again, this is not how people conceived of love and marriage relationships in the late 1800s. So Woodhull was known for touring around the city ostensibly as part of a presidential campaign. And here's an excerpt from one of her speeches where she talks about how the legal status of marriage and the emotional status of being in love are not actually one and the same. Law cannot change what nature has already determined. Neither will love obey if law command. Law cannot compel two to love. It has nothing to do with love or with its absence. Love is superior to all law, and so also is hate, indifference, disgust, and all other human sentiments which are evoked in the relations of the sexes. It legitimately and logically follows, if love have anything to do with marriage, that law has nothing to do with it. And, on the contrary, if law have anything to do with marriage, that love has nothing to do with it. And there is no escaping this delineation. Woodhull often compared emotionless, loveless marriages, marriages made for social or political or financial reasons, to prostitution, which she, by the way, was not in favor of. Also, when I was researching this, apparently some of her political opponents alleged that she engaged in prostitution. I have never found anything that suggested that it was actually real, but that's beside the point. Uh, her reasoning was that prostitution involved having sex for money, and that taking part in an arranged marriage amounted to trading sex, and also domestic labor, for money and social status. As you can imagine, this was a slightly inflammatory thing to say in 1872, and several of the newspaper articles that I read mention that Woodhull had crowds shuffling their feet and murmuring with disdain at this comparison. Woodhull also, though, said that it was insulting to people in general, women in particular, to say that law was necessary to compel them to do right and moral things. This is from a newspaper article from 1872 reporting on one of uh, Victoria Woodhull's speeches, and it begins after she has caused something of an uproar in the crowd. Quoting the newspaper article, Mrs. Woodhull, who had shrunk back timidly from the uproar with her manuscript, came forward and said boldly, Yes, I am a free lover. I believe in the inalienable right to change my husband every day if I like. I trust I am understood, for I mean what I say and nothing else. I claim that freedom means to be free. Here, wild young men in the audience cheered most tumultuously, and Mrs. Woodhull then continued her lecture as follows. It seems to me that no grosser insult could be offended to women than to insinuate that she is honest and virtuous only because the law compels her to be so, and still less do women realize what they admit of their sex by such assertions. I honor and worship that purity which exists in the soul of every noble man and woman, while I pity a woman who is virtuous simply because a law compels her. So what she's saying is that if you're virtuous or if you're doing the right thing only because an authority compels you, you don't actually have virtue or rightness within you, and she feels sorry for you if it's not something inherent, and she also feels that it's insulting to women to think that they're good only because the law tells them that they should be good. And this is a line of reasoning that comes up again and again in rhetoric surrounding right action and its relation to authority. Woodhull here is making a very, very old argument that right action, morality, virtue, whatever you want to call it, is not necessarily right because an authority, such as a law, 
says that it is. Instead, it's right because of some other inherent factor. And when I say that this is a very old argument, I mean that it's ancient Greek old. It's Socrates old. Uh, the very first thing that I had to read as an 18-year-old college freshman in Philosophy 101 was Plato's Euthyphro, in which Socrates asks a young man, Euthyphro, whether or not something is good because the gods love it, or whether the gods love it because it is good. This is an issue that comes up in a lot of contemporary debates about religion, atheism, ethics, and morality. For a more complete discussion of rightness and right actions, please direct your attention to the complete works of Immanuel Kant, one of the most irritating philosophers of all time, also one that I admire immensely. Back to Woodhull, though. Her rhetoric was fiery. She advocated a full-on appending of the social order to allow for women's equality. Here's some more of her campaign rhetoric. Rise and declare yourself free. Women are entirely unaware of their power. Like an elephant led by a string, they are subordinated by just those who are interested in holding them in slavery. If the next Congress refuses women all legitimate results of citizenship, we shall proceed to call another convention expressly to frame a new constitution and to erect a new government. We mean treason. We mean secession. And on a thousand times grander scale than that of the South. We are plotting revolution. Woodhull, as you might expect, lost the 1872 presidential election. The winner of that contest was Ulysses S. Grant, a man who, I think, deserves a far better reputation in American history than the one he actually has, but that's a whole other rant. During Election Day herself, Woodhull didn't get to go to an election night party or that kind of thing. She was in jail. Um, earlier, she'd called out a popular preacher, a man named Henry Ward Beecher, as a hypocrite because he had been unfaithful to his wife. And, in reaction to this, the Reverend Beecher's supporters mobilized. Uh, Woodhull and her sister Tennessee, they were arrested for sending obscene material through the mail. And even though they were eventually found not guilty, they still spent about a month in jail. And, again, that precluded any kind of grand election night party for America's first female presidential candidate. Later in her life, Woodhull married a rich banker and moved to England, where she spent most of her life. Uh, she ran for president again in 1892, and, it seems, got kind of weird about it, uh, declaring that she was prophesized and destined to eventually be president. And it sounds like, years on, some of that old, traveling, clairvoyant spiritualism stuff still stuck around, and she actually thought that God or destiny or whatever was guiding her to the Oval Office. She did not win in 1892 either. It's easy to look at Woodhull, to see her as a pioneer of feminism and of women's rights, and she was, but I think it's also important to note that historical figures are people too, and people are complicated. They have layers. They're multidimensional. And you can be a trailblazing advocate for equality and also be something of an egomaniacal crazy person, which Woodhull probably was. Uh, she ended up alienating a lot of her fellow suffragists, most notably Susan B. Anthony, who called Woodhull, quote, lewd and indecent. Anthony and others, they didn't care for Woodhull's radical sexual politics, and they also did not care for her personally, thinking of her as something of an egomaniac. But again, she thought that God or destiny or whatever was guiding her to the Oval Office, so Susan B. Anthony might have been onto something there. Woodhull did leave to see women's suffrage become the law of the land in 1920, and she eventually died in 1927. Nowadays, her views are fairly mainstream. People are okay with marrying for love rather than for social reasons. 
and what was truly radical and revolutionary in the 1870s has now been folded in with normality. And it's fascinating to look at Woodhull, who I do think is important and crazy and important, as more than just a curiosity. She was a radical who breathed fire, who challenged the system, who fomented revolution, who called for an appending of the social order, and now we live in her world. Her beliefs are now our beliefs. What she wanted is actually the law of the land. And in that sense, Woodhill won something far more important than a mere presidential election. Interesting Times is recorded at the studios of Portland's X-Ray FM 91.1 and 107.1 in Portland, Oregon. Our engineer is Arthur Rosado. Also, this is an ad-free podcast, and we are entirely supported by our various Patreon supporters. Uh, if you would like to become a supporter, please go to interestingtimespodcast.com, click on Support IT on Patreon, and sign up for a recurring monthly bit of support for the podcast. We'd really appreciate that. On Twitter, I'm at Joe Streckert. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash interesting times with Joe Streckert. Also, I'm on Tumblr, joestreckert.tumblr.com. My social media stuff is just my name because I'm creative. Thank you guys very much for listening. I'll see you next week.